year or not, but I thought we'd start this morning off with a little game. So, um, for everyone who is able, I'm going to need you to stand up. If you're not able, you can just put your hand up and put your hand down when it's appropriate. So, stand up. (laughs) It's nothing scary, I promise. So, I am going to read out a sentence, and if that sentence applies to you, you, if it's true for you, then you sit down. Okay, so the first one is, never have I ever missed a a flight, an an airplane. So if you have, then sit down. If If you have, so if you have, if you have missed a flight, sit down. Okay? Never have I ever called a teacher mom or dad. So if you have called it your teacher or someone, mom and dad, sit down. Okay. Never have I ever got stuck in a lift. <laughs> Never have I ever forgotten to do homework. <laughs> oh, not many left. Okay. Never have I ever forgotten to pick up a child from school. <laughs> Don't worry, I'd have been down on the first one, so. Um, never have I ever sent a text message meant for, or sent, sent it to the wrong person. <laughs> so I, I got you all, I had a few more, oh, one, one person left, okay. So I don't know if this will apply to you, but we'll try it. Never have I ever forgotten where we parked the car. Uh, well, we have, a, we have a winner. I'm afraid of no prizes, but. Um, so that will hopefully make sense in a minute, but. This morning, uh, well, well, before summer, we began or we finished a series on oikonomia, uh, or which was basically about managing your household and managing your resources well. And I was really blessed, but also really challenged by that. And if you remember, there was five resources that we spoke about. They were spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, and financial. These resources have been placed into our care, and it's our responsibility to steward them well. And throughout the series, God really challenged me on what stewarding those resources in my life looked like. Our ability to steward well directly relates to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So when I'm spending time in His presence, my perspective is kingdom. I'm more easily drawn to make choices that give Him the glory and benefit the kingdom, not just me. The days that when I don't spend so much time in his presence are more often than not the days where my choices are based on what I want or my desires. And when I react badly, it shows my lack of kingdom perspective. By kingdom perspective, I mean God's perspective. When I spend time in his presence, I become less concerned with me, myself and I, and become more and more concerned about Jesus about living in a place where knowing who I am, knowing who he is, and knowing who he made me to be and what he's made me to do. So this morning, I want to talk about something that for me has probably been one of the biggest struggles and hurdles in relation to that. So if you're taking notes and you want a title, this morning's title is The Great Distractions. You may have noticed that that was a theme running through the questions of never have I ever For most of you, the reason you sat down was because for some reason something had distracted you. Maybe maybe it was something more important. 
but maybe it was just that your attention was drawn for a second and it meant that you were distracted from what you should have been focusing on. But how can we not be distracted? The world we live in is full of distractions every minute of the day. We all have at least one phone. We all have iPads, laptops, um, computers. Some of us have games consoles like Xboxes. And that's just technology. There are literally millions of ways that we can be distracted. The world we live in is a busy one. And it expects us to be on call every minute of every day. We all have... All of us who have phones have literally instant access to contact one another. We can use Facebook, we can use text, we can use phone calls, emails, FaceTime, Snapchat, iMessage, um, Skypes, um, Instagram. The list is really endless. There's so many ways that we can contact one another. And these platforms allow us to have instant communication with almost anyone. So distraction to an extent is inevitable. There are always going to be distractions. But I believe that distraction is one of the enemy's best tactics. He doesn't need to to attack us if only he can distract us. Enough that we lose sight of our Heavenly Father. Throughout the Bible, there are stories of people losing sight and losing focus on God. I think in my experience, it's been the most common way the enemy has attacked me. Distraction can come in many forms, but ultimately, it has the same impact. It takes our eyes off the Heavenly Father from His plan, and everything else around us can suffer. The enemy's greatest desire is that he can distract us long enough to keep our focus on anything other than the Father, and that we lose our kingdom perspective. So I want to take some time this morning to look at different examples of how distraction works in my life and maybe in yours and what we can learn from it. So the first one, who do you think you are or identity distraction? We're going to start in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you cannot eat of any of, the tr- any of the trees in the garden? I'm just going to stop there for a second. Did you notice what happened? At the start of the chapter, it says the Lord God had made. And the serpent, in, 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 at the beginning of his question, says, did God? Up until this point, God has always been referred to as Lord God. Adonai Elohim. The first thing the serpent does is he takes Lord, God's title, away from him. He takes God's sovereignty out of the picture. Adonai is defined as Lord or master or owner. God is the master of creation and as such demands our obedience as the master of creation. So by taking this one small four-letter word out of the picture, the serpent distracts Eve with a seed of doubt about the father's character. God doesn't need to give us an explanation for why he chooses to to do things the way he does things. He He doesn't have to explain why, but he does require us to trust him. To trust that he is Adonai, Lord, Elohim, God, who knows best. In Genesis 2, 15, God gives man the commandments about how to look after, or how, what he can eat in the garden. It says, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, 
But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you will surely die. Now this is what the serpent questions Eve on. And when Eve, re- when Eve explains this as the commandment of God to the serpent, the serpent replies, it's uh, Genesis 3, 4. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is so subtle in how he plants seeds of doubt. It goes on to say, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's funny how all of a sudden Eve correlates wisdom with knowing good and evil. True wisdom would have been not allowing the serpent to take Lord, to change the Lord's name, to take Adonai out of God's name, to make him just Elohim. But when the serpent took away Adonai, he led Eve to forget God's sovereignty, to forget who God is as Lord of all, and worst of all, he calls into question God's motives. He distracts Eve with what she doesn't have and can't do, and suddenly that's all she can think about. She doesn't remember all that she is and all that God has made her to be. Eve was made in the image of God. She was the pinnacle of creation, but in one moment and with one question, the serpent convinces her that she isn't enough, that she needs more, that she needs to eat this fruit to be more like God. How often do we allow what we don't have to distract us? what we can't do to be a distraction. Whether it's we wish we could sing better or we had more money or whether it's we wish we had a better car or we were going on holiday as many times as that person seems to be going on holiday. Whatever it is, how often do we allow that that just to be a distraction from what God has called us to be? The Bible compares the church to the human body. Each person has their part to play. And yet if you aren't doing your part, if you're too busy focusing on what you wish you had or didn't have, you're going to be too busy focusing on something else that God has not called you to to do or to be. You're putting your energy into things that God has not called you to put your energy into. So not only are you going to suffer because you're not going to be following the path that God has created for you, the church as a whole is going to miss out on what you have been designed uniquely to bring to it. It's one of the beautiful things about the church. We need each other. You need our, each other's gifts just as much as each, we each need our own gifts. We all have times where we doubt our identity. Not always in our words, but sometimes in how we act. And like Eve, sometimes it seems like it would be better if we allowed the distractions to take over, to look at what seems like it'll taste nice, to follow a simpler path. But in moments where we face that self-doubt, when we have identity crisis, We need to find ways of turning to the Father. It might seem easier to stand back, to follow or to wallow in our self-pity. But it's it's so important to find ways of turning our attention to the Father, to look to Jesus. Whether that's in reading the word, whether that's in listening to praise music and allowing the words of truth to be sung over you. Whatever that looks like for you, you need to find a way of allowing allowing God to remind you of your identity of who you are and whose you are. Number two, I need a dwink. (laughs) In our family, I don't know about you, but in our family, we have some favorite stories that we tell about each of us and um, there's certain ones that come up more often than others. And this 
So this I Need a Dwink comes from a story about one of my older cousins. Now, it was before I was born, but I feel like I was there because it's one of those ones that's told so often. Um, so my mum and dad, so it was before I was born, so they had no children, and they were babysitting for my cousin, who was maybe two or three at the time. And they were taking her out for the day, and they thought they'd be really prepared and bring a little snack for the car. So as they were, the, the journey they were going on was quite a long one, so they, they, gave her the, they gave her the crisps. But what they didn't think about was the fact that they were salt and vinegar crisps. And this particular brand were especially strong salt and vinegar crisps. So a few minutes after she'd finished this packet of crisps, the little voice from the back shouts up, Auntie Flan, I need a drink. <laughs> and so they didn't have it. They hadn't thought to pack a drink. Uh, and so they were like, okay, as soon as we see a shop, we'll stop. And of all the roads they ended up on, this road, there was not a shop to be seen for miles and miles and miles. And so this little voice got more and more desperate from the front, Auntie Flan, I really, really need a drink. <laughs> um, until eventually they did find a shop and get Kirsty a drink. So we're going to jump on to a story later on in the book of Genesis about the birth. Uh, it's entitled The Birth of Jacob and Esau. Uh, Genesis 25, starting at verse 19. Sorry, we'll start at 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one will be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, the brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau, goes, it goes on to tell the story of Esau selling his birthright. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau and his family weren't exactly a poor Although it's thought there may have been a famine in the land at the time this story takes place, Isaac was relatively wealthy. So the chances that Esau was star so starving he couldn't think of anything else other than food seems a bit odd. But Esau does become so distracted by his physical situation, by his physical needs in that moment, he is willing to, tra to trade his most valuable possession for a bowl of stew. All he can hear in his mind is, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And that distracted him from what God had called him to be. He was the firstborn, and as the firstborn, he was given right, he would be given rights that others wouldn't. And yet he's still blinded by what he lacks. 
you can't focus on getting on anything other than getting a meal. How often do we allow ourselves to be distracted by what we lack, by what we don't have? Have we ever used our lack as an excuse of why we can't fully enter into what God is calling us to? How often is it something like a bowl of stew that we lack and we ask God, but God, I can't do it because I don't have my something, my bowl of stew. Don't you think that the Heavenly Father will provide for you what he's calling you into? Too often God is asking us to trust. And yet we can't see his, we won't see his provision until we do trust. Don't allow your lack to be your excuse of why you can't fully enter in. Number three, but I'm comfy. The distraction of comfort. Uh, we're going to move on to Samson. I'm sure you're familiar with his story. But first I want to tell you another story. In my house, um, growing up, and I'm sure this isn't just unique to us, we often had disagreements about who had to go and reach the remote, even though it may have only been not even at the other side of the room. And it became a bit of a running joke that someone would be like, oh, please pass me the remote. And the other person would be like, no, no, you, you're closer. You need to reach it. And the, the, and the other person always responded with, oh, but I'm so comfy here. Don't make me get up. Uh, and it escalated to the point of one week or one time, I was in my bedroom and I just heard this. Sh- my name was called from the living room and it sounded like something really bad had happened. So I came rushing, rushing through really, really fast. And I was like, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, Amy, I can't reach the remote. <laughs> and it wasn't any further than the end of our, t- our feet were on the poofy and it wasn't any further than the end of our toes. Um, so it became a bit of a joke in our house that we'd be like, oh, but I'm comfy. And so in Samson's story, we, we read, we'll start at, at verse um, chapter 13. In Judges. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. You have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. And eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall, be, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson was birthed for a purpose. God would not only use him as a judge for the people of Israel, but to deliver justice to the Philistines. For many reasons, Samson's life was different. Unlike the other judges, he never led armies or held courts, and yet God still used him for his purposes. Samson controversially decided he wanted to marry a Philistine woman, something that was forbidden to the Israelites, and yet the Bible says that it was of the Lord. Now, we don't always understand why God chooses to do things the way he does, and whether it was God who placed the desire in Samson or God redeemed Samson's choice, we're not sure. But it is women that will be Samson's downfall. And as the story goes on, it's Samson's eye for the ladies that gets him into trouble. We see another woman enter his life, and she has entered with the purpose of finding out the secret of his strength. And although it seems like Samson knows this and understands this, he's aware of her plan, yet somehow in the end he still gives away his secret. 
the secrecy to his strength. And the Bible says the spirit of God leaves him. Samson's want for a bit of comfort, a bit of peace and quiet, a bit of simplicity leads him to give out the secret that God has placed within him. He forgets the call that God has placed on his life. He forgets he was born to live a different life. We are a called out people. God has called you into his kingdom for a reason. And despite how it may look in other people's lives, rarely is that place a place of comfort. Rarely does God call you from a place of what seems comfortable into a place that seems even more comfortable. Often it looks a bit scarier and a bit less comfortable and a little like you're maybe going to be missing out on some stuff if you do. But Samson, and Samson didn't have an easy life. So it's understandable that he, there's part of him that wants to choose this comfort, this simple life, to make Delilah stop nagging him. And yet he wasn't made to live a safe and comfortable life. So don't allow comfort to become an excuse. Don't be distracted by what at first seems comfortable and safe, because that is not what God created you for. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story, eh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the famous quote from that story where it says, where, the, where Susan is talking to a beaver, and, he, and it says, um, Aslan the lion is a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. When we try to put God into a box labeled safe, we change who he is. Number four, relational, or don't be the appendix. I don't know if you've ever heard that Francis Chan sermon where he's talking about the, the verse I mentioned earlier about the church being the body. And he says, you know, every church has one, the appendix. That person that you're not exactly sure what they do. They're kind of in the background. You don't really see much going on. And until all of a sudden, one day, they just explode over what seems like nothing and cause a whole lot of problems for the people around them. We're going to move on to the story about Saul and David, which is found in 1 Samuel 6. 16 chapter, yeah, 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 14. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let the Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered into his service. And Saul loved him greatly. He became the arm, his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whatever evil spirit from God was upon Saul, 
Whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now the story of David and Samuel is an, or sorry, Saul is an interesting one. When David first enters Saul's life, as we read there, he is a blessing. Saul loves him and favors him and brings him into his service. He gives him one of the most important jobs. And David becomes so valuable to him. Only David was able to bring him peace. And yet, as time goes on, and as we read further into the story, Saul begins to become jealous of David. He begins to despise him, and ultimately he seeks to kill him. Things in our lives can start off as blessings, but become distractions. And sometimes the things that were the biggest blessing in our life once can actually become the biggest distraction. Maybe what was a big blessing in your life once has now become a distraction. The the enemy likes to use details to distract us so that we forget that God is sovereign, just like he did with Eve in the garden. But God is a God of mystery. Even when we don't understand, even when we wish that he would give us a six-week plan followed by a six-month plan followed by a six-year plan so that we know what our life is going to look like, because we need to know the details. But God is God, and as much as our controlling nature desires to know everything, and as much as the voice of doubt in our mind distracts us with money, with not being good enough, with comfort, with you can't do that, with a need for approval, with did God really say? God is still God. He still asks us to do things that don't always make sense, that sometimes even verge on ridiculous but God is mysterious. And if there's no room for mystery in your relationship with the Father, then you are putting him in that box labeled safe. God doesn't need you to understand him. The Bible is how he reveals himself to us. And it does reveal elements of who he is. And yes, we can learn and get to know his character through reading our Bible and spending time in prayer. But the Bible is full of crazy stories, things that we can't explain. Stories of a man pushing down a building with his bare hands, killing thousands of people. Sometimes God asks us to do crazy and bizarre things, things that look really weird from the outside. But if you can explain why God wants us to do things the way he asks us to do them, then you would be him. We need to learn to be uncomfortable with being comfortable, trusting in his methods, trusting in his ways. Number five, it's always been that way. In the church I grew up in, it was quite a traditional church, and it became a bit of a running joke that any time someone was suggesting a change, the response would inevitably be, but it's always been that way, or it's always been that way if you don't speak Scottish. Um, And so an example of this is um, our church is is, is a big space, but there's pews that are built in. And because of the pews that are built in, it means that any time we're doing different activities, there is a hall. But sometimes if we were doing different children's clubs or different things, it would have been such a good space to use because there was a huge amount of floor space, but none of it could be used very productively because of these rigid pews. Um, And so we, we had the discussion about introducing chairs and taking the pews away, but we couldn't do that because it's always been pews and we've always had these pews ever since the church was built. And it became a bit of a joke that it's always been that way and it would always stay that way. Because you can't move such and such as pillow because that's her seat and it's always been her seat. So don't you be moving it. 
in Northern Ireland, I believe that religion has become a huge distraction. Christianity has never been about rules or laws. Anyone can follow a rule. It's always been about your heart. Why are you following the rule? Is it because you think it makes you look good? Or is it because it's your heart's desire to live like Jesus, to look to Jesus, to serve him with all that you are? Are you seeking man's approval? Or, are, or do you know that your heavenly father has already given you his approval to be who he created you to be? In high school, it's always a hard time, I think, for everyone because you're just figuring out who you are. But for too long in my life, I know that my actions and how I felt about myself were dictated by how my friends made me feel and how they were acting. I became so caught up in trying to fit in with them that I lost sight of who I was created to be. And my self-worth became dependent on how I was treated by these girls and how they made me feel. And I'm sure you know that high school girls can be mean and selfish just like we all can. So where are you finding your approval? And finally, apathy. How's things? Oh, busy. You know, busy, busy, busy. Christians are busy. People are busy. Another way the enemy uses religion as a distraction is through apathy. You see, Sunday Christians pose no real threat. Even people who attend every meeting, every service, every prayer meeting, everything that's going on, potentially pose no real threat. The enemy isn't scared by busy Christians. He's not even scared of people going through the motions. What he is scared of, and what he will go out of his way to distract us from, is being Christians who understand our potential. Christians willing to step out and step up. To go with what the Holy Spirit is telling them, and not to be concerned with understanding the details or what other people think. Not allowing jealousy to blind you to your unique talent and gifting. Jesus wants more for us than a ticket to heaven and a nice life. Jesus wants our commitment. He wants believers to stop being distracted by the things that look good on the outside, but have no real impact in the inside or in the heavenly realms. Commitment isn't easy, and it's becoming harder and harder in this world to be committed people. We live in a non-committal world. People don't like to be expected to commit. And so we don't, place e- we don't place any expectation on others to commit. You can follow and unfollow people with the touch of a button. You can cancel or change plans at the last minute by a text without much cost to yourself. If you don't like your job, you go and find a new one. Approximately a third of marriages end in divorce. It's no wonder we find it hard to commit and it's only going to get harder We have no real examples of what commitment looks like, or very few. But when Jesus calls his disciples, he asks them to follow him. But do you think they knew where they were going? Do you think they knew the details? Do you think they even knew who Jesus really was? Do you think they had everything figured out before they committed? No. Sometimes both Christians and non-Christians simplify following Jesus to making it sound like it's all about just becoming a better person. It's about living a nice life, about giving to charity, about not swearing or not watching a certain kind of film. But being a Christian isn't about becoming a better person, although that may come, but it may not even fit what the world expects a better person to look like. Don't be distracted by the need for physical results, for the approval of man. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
It's kind of it's like healthy eating. Do you know, so many people eat healthy for the sole purpose of looking different on the outside. And while that might work for a while, it might even work for a, a long time, it might never work. Healthy eating has become such a superficial thing. And yes, you may look good on the outside, but is it going to change how you're feeling about yourself on the inside? I'd suggest maybe for a little while, but not anything permanent. Now, I believe that healthy eating is really important, but not because of how it makes us look, but because it's part of stewarding our bodies well. Our health is a gift, and our bodies, and giving the bodies the nutrients they need is our responsibility. But just like discipleship, if we get so caught up in the need for physical changes, things that other people see, uh, uh, things that look good on the outside, then our eyes are not on Jesus. And we, start, we may even start doing things that aren't actually healthy in the hopes of seeing results quicker. So stop looking around and look up. Look at his face. Focus your eyes on him. Because one of the amazing and yet baffling things about the kingdom, something that doesn't even necessarily make sense, is that when we keep our eyes on Jesus, when I focus on him and prioritize him above everything else, everything around me changes. Everything that I can choose to let distract me will still be there. The difference is that I'm focused on Jesus. And my perspective about those things in my life shift. My life doesn't become perfect. I don't get a Paris. I don't get more stuff or better friends. And yet how I look at my job, the way I approach the people around me, the way I approach the way I eat is different. And when I have a heavenly perspective on life, nothing changes and yet everything has changed. Church, we need to start recognizing the distractions in our life and dealing with them as they come up. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about seeking first his kingdom. So are there relational distractions in your life? People maybe you need to spend less time with? Or people that you need to stop allowing to have such an influence on you? Are you being distracted by comparison? Allowing seeing the gifts that other people have to distract you from the gifts that God has placed within you? Because for a lot of people, you see, the, you see the fruit of that gift, but you don't see the hard work that's gone into nurturing that gift to where it is. It takes hard work, but it's worth it. If God has planted it within you, it's worth investing in. So don't be distracted by how other people's lives look. Don't be distracted by the approval you seek from man, because you've already been approved and you've already been gifted. So as the bands come up now, we're just going to take a minute and pray. If there's things that we've spoken about this morning that are challenging you or you'd like someone to pray for, there are people there that, that can do that. We saw all our prayer warriors come up to pray for the girls. So if there's someone beside you that you would like pray, to pray for or someone to pray with, then feel free to do that. Or I'm around or David's around or anyone is around that we would love to pray with you. So just in closing, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you are Lord God, that you are sovereign, that you are greater than everything, and that you love us unconditionally. 
that you have approved us for the purposes that you are creating us for, that you have given us all that we need, that even when we think we're lacking in something, Father, that you, that is when you are glorified most. So God, help us to use those moments of weakness to bring honor and glory to you, Father. Help us to trust in you. Help us to glorify you, Father. And help us to set aside the things that are distracting us, that are not honoring you, that are not bringing us closer to you, that are distracting us from being in your presence, Father. God, in the moments when we doubt you, in the moments when we doubt ourselves, Father, let your voice be the loudest. Let your voice be the one that speaks above all others, saying, you're my son, you're my daughter who I love. You are enough. I have given you all you need. So Holy Spirit, come and move this morning. Come and speak to our hearts. Waken us up if that's what we need. Get us out of routines. Get us away from busyness. Whatever you need to do, Holy Spirit, we just give you permission to move this morning. Amen.